Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Lord willing, uh, next week we'll finish Hebrews chapter 7 as we go through the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> the end of chapter, uh, the first four verses, verse 4 talked about uh, that we should recognize or understand how great this man is. And uh, ultimately it's a uh, reflection on Jesus and how great he is. When we come to this present section of Hebrews, it starts to elaborate on why the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And this will lead, as we will see at the end of uh, these verses here tonight, as well as next week, into a very um, uh, just uh, logical, I guess you could say, flow of understanding of this passage. Um, What we have here in these verses, in verses 5 through 13, is a number of contrasts. And I put down four of them that we'll be looking at. Number one, uh, the contrast is that the Levitical priesthood was temporary. Uh, Any individual Levite uh, actually would only serve for a number of years, but ultimately he would die as well. So that priesthood that that individual um, office holder would have um, was, was temporary. The Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal. So temporal versus eternal. Secondly, the Jewish people gave tithes to the Levites, while Abraham, from whom the Jewish people came, gave tithes to Melchizedek. And as we look at that later on, and it talks about being in um, Abraham and the Jewish people, it, it's, there is a thought in, in, in among the Jewish world, uh, I know it's been brought to me at times by Orthodox rabbis who say I need to keep the Mosaic Law, and that is that when the Jewish people at Sinai, and if you remember the events at Sinai, Deuteronomy 5, for example, uh, is one chapter that would cover it, all of the miraculous happenings, you know, the, the, the cloud and the fire and the voice of God uh, and on all of that, and every single Jewish person there uh, accepted 
the uh, command of God uh, to keep the law that was given. Well, there's a thought in uh, Jewish ultra-Orthodoxy for sure that in the loins of those Jewish people there, because every tribe was represented, in the loins of those Jewish people, and you could extend this even back to Abraham then, and Isaac and Jacob and so on, every Jewish person who would ultimately come into the world was, was, not, was more than represented what was there in them, even though they weren't born yet, if you're following. And that's the argument that is actually given in, in this section of Hebrews at one point. And why Melchizedek is so much better than Levitical priesthood. And we'll look at that as we get into it. But that type of belief goes back 2,000 years. It goes back previous to that and is still around today. And so in the, in the Jewish mindset, the religious mindset, every Jewish person who is born into the world, it is incumbent upon them to keep the Mosaic law because all the Jewish people became responsible when the nation of Israel accepted that law at Sinai, at the mountain. And we're going to have that type of argument here on why Melchizedek is better, the priesthood of, Mel uh, of Melchizedek better than the priesthood of the Levites. And the basic argument is the Levites came from Abraham, and yet Abraham uh, worshipped Melchizedek and gave tithes to Melchizedek. That makes Melchizedek so much better. Point number three, because the greater blesses the lesser. Melchizedek blessing Abraham shows he is greater than Abraham and his descendants. This is the same type of thinking. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Thus, Melchizedek blessing Abraham, that shows that Melchizedek is better than Abraham as well as all of his descendants because the descendants brought tithes to other descendants, the Levites. But finally, the change in priesthood necessitated, necessitated a change of the Mosaic law covenant to a better law or a better covenant. And when we ultimately get to chapter 8, that is picked up in chapter 8 and really continues in 9 and 10 uh, in the argument that we have, that there has to be a change uh, uh, of the law, and I'll mention this later, not in the law, but of the law. See, to change something in the law is to keep the body of the law, but only change whatever it might be within that body of law. But changing of the law is to do away with the whole thing. So it's a distinction that must be made, uh, specifically since there are people today that says, hey, we're still... Uh, the Mosaic Law is still incumbent upon Christians. But some parts in the law have been done away with. And we'll, we'll consider that briefly. We've looked at, that, at it in the past, so we'll, we'll consider that briefly as we get there. So these four contrasts uh, that we have here. So it starts out in verse 5. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. So it starts out, and verily they that are of or out
out of, literally, ek, out of the sons of Levi. The implication of this is that the reference here is not to all Levites. For not all were priests, but only those who were out of, that's the preposition, Greek preposition, ex, out of or from, the tribe of Levi and from the house of Aaron, and thus were duly qualified to be priests. See, some of the Levites were, they were all technically priests in the tribe, uh, but some of them didn't do priestly activities. Uh, the Aaronic line would, the Kohanim, that type of thing. And so the thought is that verily they that are the, 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 the sons that come out of Levi, they're still Levites, but they're different than the rest of Levi. That's the only time in the Bible it's used this way. Only time in Hebrews uh, where it's mentioned this way. And um, the United Bible Society commentary, a handbook of the letter to the Hebrews says this. The differences between Levites and priests are complex and partly uncertain. It is not even certain that the author of Hebrews distinguished between priests and Levites. That is, between those Levites who descended from Levi through Aaron and those who belong to other branches of the Levi family. So if you're from Aaron, that's the high priestly line, uh, the Kohanim, but there are other sons of Levi that you could descend from and still be a Levite. Those descendants of Levi who are priests assumes that the writer did make this distinction, but is made nowhere else in Hebrews, not even in verse 11, where one might expect it. Well, it, he's comparing, uh, it's kind of like taking the cream, the cream of the crop. Um, when, it, when it talked earlier in verse 4, I know we looked at that last week, and I don't think we, it talked about taking the, the, the spoils and giving a, a, a tenth uh, of the spoils to the Lord, uh, or, or some language like that. Um, it, it, literally what it is, it goes back to the spoils of war, and, and, and the choicest tenth of those spoils goes to the king, or ultimately to their God, whoever would be winning on. So it's not just any tenth. It's, and, and some would even uh, translate that as first truths. Let me, let me read Hebrews um, 7, 4 again. And I don't think I brought this out when we looked at it. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoil. Abraham had won the battle. They had gone to war. He had all kinds of spoils from the, the military conquest. And, and the word used there for the, for the tenth of the spoils is from the top of the heap. Some have translated it the first fruits, the best. Uh, and so Abraham took the best of the spoils and gave it to Melchizedek. And so it's very possible what is being said in verse 5 when it's, when it's narrowing down the thought to those who come out of Levi in the, perhaps you could say, even more important position, that of 
the Kohanim, the uh, high priest, and, and those, those, are, those are the more choice positions, if you will, if you were a Levite. So even in the most choice position of being a Levite, it doesn't even begin to compare with the Melchizedekian priesthood. And so verily they that are of the sons of Levi, or come out of, it's ek, out of Levi, the sons who come out of Levi, which receive the office of the priesthood, they have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. So uh, they come out, so they're the choicest of the Levitical priesthood. Uh, only, only in the sense that they are, they are in the line of Aaron. They are the high priest, that type of thing. Then it says, who received the office of the priesthood. One didn't choose to be a priest in Israel. One was given. They received that office. Now, if they were born into the tribe of Levi, they received that responsibility. But no one could choose to be a priest it was something that was given by God only to the Levites. Even they didn't choose it. God chose them uh, for that service. Well, that type of thing is true um, for anybody who serves today. But first look at Numbers 18, 21 and 26. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in Israel for an inheritance. For their service, which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Then verse 26. Thus speak unto the Levites and say unto them, When you take of the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you them for your inheritance, then ye shall offer up a heave offering of it for the Lord, even the tenth part of the tithe. Speak unto the Levites. I have given you from them for your inheritance. I have given to the Levites because they have been set aside to serve me. Now, there's a principle here that carries over to the New Testament age, church age. The same type of way today, when somebody uh, is in full-time ministry, they are called into that ministry. They receive that ministry. Now, they have to be willing to follow God's leading in their life, but in a sense, they didn't choose it. Paul said it this way, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, it, if you haven't been called into the ministry, you don't want to go into the ministry. Because it's the calling of God. It's God putting you into that ministry. Um, and you always hear of people who go into the ministry in four years or six years or eight years or whatever years later, uh, they burn out and they leave it and they just want to go back into or go into secular field or, or secular work. Um, one of the problems might be is that too many people go into ministry that God hasn't put into the ministry. And they're just... Um, What's the old, um, is it the, um, the Peter principle? Is that the, you know, that people are, are raised to their level of incompetence? Uh, is that the Peter principle, I think? Yeah, that, you know, when you're in a company and you, 
you get promotion after promotion after promotion, and finally you're raised to the point where you can't do the job because you don't have the competence to do it. Um, in a sense, that's uh, some people who go into ministry. Uh, it's not that they're incompetent, but they haven't been put there by God. Uh, and, and, and it's so important when you do that. Uh, I hear, I've heard of, of people coming off the mission field after one term. They were burnt out. They didn't enjoy it. Whatever the case, something, you know. I wonder if they're ever put into the ministry to begin with by God. Or that they had some enamored feelings about how great it would be to serve God full time. Uh, and they were just not put there to do that. You know, we're all serving God full time, but we're not all called into full time ministry or put into ministry. So just like the Levites received this from God, so do people today. Um, because you know, ministry can be very difficult. Um, can be very rewarding, full-time ministry, but can be very difficult too. Uh, because you're getting shot at from every direction, including uh, the friends who are standing behind you, and the enemy who's in front of you. Uh, so, uh, you know, right? Bob knows that, right? Uh, so, but he's... <laughs> so, yeah, Bob, Bob, can I see what you emailed me this or, tweet or texted me this week? Yeah. Bob was asked uh, by the pastor of his church, who we will not name, doesn't matter. He didn't do anything wrong. Bob didn't do anything wrong. If Bob would consider teaching a Sunday school class and being a deacon in the church. Now, in a Baptist church, uh, deacon, the polity, you know what polity is? Polity is the ruling system. How, how they understand the, the Bible teaches the ruling system. And, 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 and Baptist polity, it's, it's pastor-led deacon rule. Now, in, in a lot of other churches, and, and this is not cut and dry with every Baptist church. Uh, church Ego is a Baptist church, but they don't have Baptist polity. They would have more of what you would call Presbyterian polity. Presbytery polity. That is that you have a group of elders all being co-equal theoretically, theoretically, um, and they, 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 they co-rule together, the pastor being one elder of, depending on the size of the church, six elders, eight elders, 12 elders. Uh, when we were at Grace Community Church with John MacArthur, uh, they had like 40 elders, but it's a huge church of 7,000. But it's, it's, they're all equal, and everybody has a vote. We're the Baptist polity. So in a sense, then, deacons are, are like elders. So we... I'm not, we're not going to discuss which is correct and which isn't. What I have, I have been in churches where under Baptist polity and under Presbytery polity. I've been a deacon in a church, and I've been an elder in a church. And you know what the bottom line is? They're all pastor-led and group-ruled, if you will, and congregational uh, if you have a good, godly, strong pastor, uh, he, he will lead. Um, <clears throat> you know, and that's true with John MacArthur, um, who teaches elder leadership and 
He's one vote of many. Uh, well, hi, John. Um, in reality, that's not how it works. Um, what John wants, John gets. What John doesn't want, John doesn't get. Uh, you, know, it, you know, it doesn't happen. Uh, and that came from Elder. Anyway, um, so all of that to say, Bob was asked to be a Sunday school and, and a deacon. So he, he texted me. I probably even have the text here. He said, what do you think? And so I said, well, and, and he was, I should look at, you were hesitant about teaching. I think that was the issue. Pardon? Well, yes, but, yes. So he, but he was hesitant about teaching because uh, he sees his giftedness in other areas, helps him, that type of thing. I just, I, I responded and said, well, I said, if you don't have the gift of teaching, you shouldn't teach. Not a, not a structured, formal class. You know, we all teach somebody or someone along the way. And he might teach Donna. He might teach his daughter. He might teach you or me or somebody, but not in a formal setting. And so I said, so as far as teaching is concerned, if you don't have the gift of teaching, and you, don't, you probably don't have the gift of teaching, you shouldn't teach, plain and simple. Not in a formal classroom type of structure. And then I said, but if you want to be a deacon um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7, I think it is, where it gives the requirements of a bishop. Now, and Bob's response, well, that's for a bishop. The deacon is down in, starting in verse 8. Well, that's true in the passage, but in the Baptist, Baptist polity, a deacon is equal to a bishop or an elder. So, in most, you know, there are exceptions, uh, like colonial, which only has elders. Anyway, I said, so if you meet all the requirements of, of a deacon, then it, one who desires the office of a deacon, then if you desire to be a deacon, be a deacon. But understand, one of the requirements for a deacon is that you need to be apt to teach. And if you're not desiring to teach, maybe you shouldn't be a deacon. So, so he said, I'm not going to be a deacon. I'm not going to teach this Sunday school. And I guess you told the pastor, or will tell the pastor that. So, and and that's, that's neither right nor r r wrong. It's what God has gifted you in. Uh, and if Bob would try to teach a Sunday school, not have the gift to teach the Sunday school, that wouldn't be good. That wouldn't be good. Um, and if he doesn't have the desire to serve as a deacon or an elder, then God hasn't put that desire in him to serve, and he, and he shouldn't. Um, the Levites were called by God. They received the ministry same way today uh, in receiving the office of the priesthood and going into career ministry or full-time ministry. Then it says this in verse 5. They have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. So the Levites had a commandment that they were to receive tithes of their fellow citizens, of the people, according to the law. Now, this is the first time in Hebrews law is used. 
And law here speaks of the Mosaic law. In the next uh, four chapters, it will be used 13 times, including this use here. In verse 5, in verse 12, in verse 16, verse 19, verse 28 of Hebrews 7, and 8, 4, and 10, 9, 19, and 22, 10, 1, 8, 16, and 28. So uh, it's kind of opened up a uh, uh, Pandora's box, if you will, to the Mosaic Law, which was very important to the Jewish people, so it has to be dealt with. But in the, in the context of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the Mosaic Covenant, which is the Mosaic Law. So they had a command. They had to receive tithes according to the law. Now, the, the point of this is that Levites took a tithe because God commanded it. In contrast, if you, if you think back to Genesis 14 and Melchizedek and Abraham, was Abraham under any command to give tithes to Melchizedek? No. He, it was, he gave it freely. And so there's a contrast. One is by law, one is by, if you will, by grace. Free will offering that when he gave that tithe to Melchizedek. So look at verse 6 now. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So when it talks about he whose descent is not counted from them, he's talking about Melchizedek, and he's not of the Jewish people. He's not of, actually, Abraham. He's not coming from the loins of Abraham. Certainly at this point, the Jewish people were not in existence because Melchizedek met Abraham, Genesis chapter 14. He didn't have even have his kids yet. And so, obviously, there was no Jewish people, but Melchizedek wasn't even from the loins of Abraham. So Melchizedek, obviously, was, was a Gentile king. But his lineage, uh, his descent did not come from them who received tithes. Uh, but he whose descent is not counted from them uh, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. <clears throat> the lesser we'll get into in the, in the next verse is blessed by the greater. And blessed him that had the promises. Who had the promises? And what, what were the promises? Abraham had the promises. Where do we find those promises that God gave to Abraham? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God told Abram to leave Ur the Chaldees, and I will show you a land. I will make of a, a, a great nation of you. And all families of the earth shall be blessed through you. And, and, and we think of those. And I've said many times, uh, and I know this when I, when I did the series this past week at, um, <coughs> in Lodi, I, I mentioned it. And, and we're going to look, uh, with the holidays coming up, we're going to look soon uh, at an overview of the feast days. I, I've come to believe that there's a, there's a great misunderstanding on the feasts. That is that we oftentimes take a uh, Christological interpretation or typology of the feasts. Like when you hear the, 
the Feast of Pentecost. What is the type of, what does that type of or illustrate uh, in your understanding that you, if, you've heard, if you've studied this or heard this enough in, in, in your years in Christianity, what does Pentecost or Shavuot, the Jewish holidays, speak of or represent? Coming of the Holy Spirit, but even more pointedly, the birth of the church. And, and, when, when, and, and so it speaks of the birth of the church. When you think of the Feast of Trumpets, what is the common teaching the Feast of Trumpets illustrates or represents? The rapture. Well, I disagree with both those understandings and all the other ones. Um, and... Uh, I've come up to the opinion, and we'll look at this more in detail when we get into it. Uh, when you look at Leviticus 23, these are the feasts of the Lord for Israel, not for the church. The church wasn't even in, in existence. But there's an argument that can be made that the first to fourth feasts, they're for Israel, symbolized all that God wanted for Israel and would give to Israel if they, re, if they embraced Jesus as their Messiah. Redemption, sanctifi uh, sanctification, um, resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But knowing they wouldn't embrace Jesus as Messiah, God gave three additional feasts later on that would bring to fruition the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, the first four feasts are founded on the Abrahamic covenant. God rejected it. The last three feasts are also founded on the Abrahamic covenant and will come to fruition. has nothing to do with the church. All of that to say, when, when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, who had the promises, those promises are so foundational. They are interwoven throughout the entire Bible. Um, and I've just become more and more convinced that the Abrahamic covenant needs to be taught more and more and integrated more and more with our, our understanding of the Word of God. Uh, if you remember back last summer when we looked at the Gog-Magog invasion, uh, what struck me as I was doing those series of lessons starting in 36, but ultimately going through 39, is how often the... Um, the particulars of the Abrahamic covenant were mentioned of being brought to fruition in that time period, in those four chapters. Four or five times, chapter 36, I think, uh, once or twice in 37, chapter 39, once or twice, four or five times, you have the Abrahamic covenant particulars, a land, a seed, and a blessing brought out which then demanded that you have to understand in some way, some shape, some form, the Gog-Magog invasion of Israel in the last days in conjunction with the Abrahamic covenant. Well, I've come to believe that with the feasts. And you, and, you, and you read that, and I've come to believe that with the fullness of the Gentiles and the abuse of the Abrahamic covenant. And, and all of that, it is so foundational for the Bible, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But when's the last time you heard in church 
anything like what I've just said. Never, never. But that's pretty much true. Um, so anyway, all of that to say that, that you know Abraham is one of the most stellar personalities in the Word of God. I mean, we think of Moses, we think of David, think of Paul. Um, he's one of the most stellar personalities, maybe the most stellar. You know, think of all. There's more um, material given over to Abraham in the Bible than I think any other individual outside of Jesus. But he was Abraham was the man of faith. You know, he's in the Hall of Fame. You know, and so when when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, that is huge. Because there's probably no more important, certainly from a scriptural vantage point, than Abraham and God's plan and what God would do through him. And yet Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's why verse, se verse um, 7 says, without all contradiction, this is not open to discussion, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. As great as Abraham was, as important as he is in giving us so much foundational truth for the unfolding of the Word of God, as, as much uh, of the Bible that we have that talks about Abraham, and there's a huge amount of material about Abraham, again, uh, more than any other personage in the Bible other than Jesus, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Without contradiction, the greater blesses the lesser. The argument then is Melchizedek is far superior to Abraham. And, and by extrapolation then, who came out of Abraham's loins? Isaac, Jacob, all the children of Israel, including the Levites. And all the children of Israel had to give tithes to the Levites. And they, just, they came from Abraham, who was blessed by someone much better than him. That's the argument that uh, is being made him. Verse 6, but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Uh, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed the better. So when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Abraham brought him tithes, Melchizedek blessed him. Abraham had all the promises given through him. And yet Melchizedek is so much better. Now here's what Dwight Pentecost commented about the less being blessed of the better. Turn, turn, your, um, turn your page over. He said this. The oriental view of superiority and subordination is a concept foreign to our modern Western culture. Therefore, it is popular among unbelievers to stand in judgment of God and raise questions like, how can a lo loving God allow suffering? Or, how could a God of love send people to hell? Sometimes this attitude carries over into our Christian lives after we trust Christ as Savior. And we find ourselves questioning 
his wisdom, his love, or his understanding. Have you ever done that in your Christian life? Interestingly, the Bible seems to indicate that real understanding of God's work in our lives begins with our humble acknowledgement that he is superior to us. And based on that alone, whether we understand it or not, we submit to his will in our lives. This was the lesson Job had to learn. And there was Abraham's attitude as well. And Pentecost then asks, shouldn't it be ours? When the greater blesses the lesser, it is showing how much better that person is. And when Abraham, who was the father of the religions of the world, the father of our faith, Father Abraham he's called, and when Melchizedek blessed him, it just showed how much uh, superior Melchizedek, ultimately Jesus, he's a type of Jesus, is over Abraham. If he is that much superior over Abraham, who had all the promises, how much more superior is he over you and me? It's, it's immeasurable. And so the point is, you never question the superior. And what Pentecost is challenging here, and the Oriental view of superiority and subordination, is that with your king, you trust your king. You submit to his rule. You don't question why he does what he does. And that should be foundational in our life. We don't understand why God allows things to come into our life. I don't understand why Moshe Gold was struck down with this major stroke some five years ago. In, in, in many ways, in, in the prime of his life. I mean, he was, he was, he was just, he was physically fit. He was, he was a type A personality. You, you, know, you couldn't keep him sat down. Uh, he was a good speaker. He was a good writer. And boom, you know. He's out of it. You know, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, and, and uh, I, I think of his wife. I think of Shoshana um, all during this time. She's, what is she, she's, if she doesn't know this lesson, she practices this lesson. I've never heard one word of complaint or woe is me, or why God did you allow this to happen out of her. I'm not saying she hasn't ever said that or whatever. I've never heard it. And I've always been amazed at her steadfastness and her attitude towards God through this. She's, she, to my knowledge, she's never blamed God. And she just accepts it and trusts God to work in both their lives. That should be the characteristic of our life. We don't know why God allows things to happen. I don't know why God did that to Moshe. Then it wouldn't have been my choice, my plan. But when things go wrong from our perspective, we need to trust God, even if we don't understand. Job had to learn that lesson. Abraham learned that lesson. That was his attitude. That was what he was experiencing. And that's the Oriental, the Mideastern, the biblical viewpoint of that. Um, we don't understand how God works. We don't understand why God does everything he does. 
That's where faith comes in. That's where trust. That's where when the superior has blessed the lesser. Has God blessed you? Yeah, with salvation. Trust him. That's what the argument is. And that's why the, the office of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, is so much greater than that of the Levites. Then in verse 8, it says this. And here, men that die receive tithes. Now, that's speaking about the Levitical priesthood. They died. Ultimately, they would be in the grave. But until that point came, as they were priests, they received tithes. But there, speaking of Melchizedek, with Abraham, there he received them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. And again, when we talk about Melchizedek, he was just a, a type, an illustration. He was a Gentile king of Jerusalem, of Salem, of that area, who was a picture, a type of Jesus. There is no record, and we looked at this in the first four verses, there's no record of uh, any parents, of his birth, of his death, any genealogy at all, that type of thing. He is a picture of Jesus, who is eternal. Um, and so when he says, of whom it is witnessed that he lives, the inference is he never dies. Now, Melchizedek, that particular king, died, but, uh, but Jesus never does. So, verse 9 and 10. And as I may say so, so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, the opening phrase, as I may say so, is used to alert the readers that what is said is not to be understood in complete strictness. In other words, uh, you were in the loins of your father, as it were, prior to him, to, prior to your being born. When you were, when he was 10 years old, you were, in a sense, in his loins, waiting to come out with his, with, um, obviously, with uh, your mom, uh, and brought into this world, that type of thing. So not literally, but in a very real sense that way. And that's why this understanding uh, among the religious Jewish world is that all Jewish people were at Sinai. All Jewish people then are uh, required to keep the Mosaic Law because when the nation committed to the Mosaic Law and following it, that encumbered every single Jewish person ever coming into the world to keep the Mosaic Law. I've had that argument used on me by rabbis. Um, as we talk about the law and, and the purpose of the law and so on. Um, Abraham is the head of Israel. Levi, in a sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham paid tithes to him as he was yet in the loins of his father. Now, that could be extrapolated to every Jewish person then, but he's dealing with the Levitical priesthood. And essentially then, the argument is that the Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood because the Levites being in the loins of Abraham and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the Levitical priests in that sense also paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's the reasoning. And this is an oriental understanding. This is a, it's a biblical, you can see it right here. 
So even though it's talked about in Judaism today among the very religious rabbis, it goes back to biblical times. I, you can see it very clearly here. Uh, and that understanding uh, that we come from the loins of our forefathers, if you will, that type of thing. But the whole purpose of this is to show how much better Melchizedekian priesthood is than the Levite priesthood. Then in verse 11, he says this. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of, Mel uh, of Aaron? Now, perfection, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Perfection, as it's used in Hebrews over and over again, is salvation. It's not Christian maturity. It's salvation. It's being saved. Your sins being forgiven. So what he's saying, if you could be saved, if I can paraphrase this, if being saved were by the Levitical priesthood, so if the Levitical priest, you bringing your offering, them offering that blood sacrifice to God, if that could cleanse your sins. And by the way, when, when, after we, when we get into chapter 8 of Hebrews, it deals with the law. And there's something better now. When we get into chapter 9 and 10, it focuses in on the most important holy day, at least from God's perspective, in the entire religious calendar of Israel. That day being, anybody want to take a stab? There's only seven. Eight if you want to consider Sabbath. Yom, day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And nine and ten deal with Yom Kippur. Because what is Yom Kippur about? The high priest goes into the presence of God to offer a sacrifice for the whole nation. And he's going to show us in those two chapters how much better Jesus is than the Yom Kippur sacrifice. So it goes from Levitical, the Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 8, the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. Not the, new, not the book, Matthew to Revelation. We've talked about that. And then he narrows it down that the... Uh, the, the offering of Jesus is so much better than the, than the most important offering in the nation of Israel's yearly cycle, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So he's developing it. But he picks it up here, and he starts, If you could be saved by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, uh, what further need was that the, another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek? The very purpose of the uh, Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood and offering sacrifices couldn't do what it was supposed to do, bring salvation, forgiveness of sins. If it could, why would we need another priesthood? Well, the obvious answer is what? We wouldn't. What further need would there be for another priest that should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. Now, MacArthur, John MacArthur, says this about perfection or perfect. 
In scripture, the word perfect is often used in the sense of maturity or completion, of being what something or someone is meant to be. Sometimes it means full grown. Paul often uses it this way. In Hebrews, however, it is used to refer to the goal and aim of Christianity. This goal, this maturity, is access to God. In this sense, it does not mean spiritual maturity, being advanced in the faith, but salvation in Christ coming to faith. And we're not going to look at 7.19 and 10.14. I've got it down here. The law made nothing perfect. Uh, by the one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. We looked at that. Uh, I think we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But the law never saved anybody. The law could never, ever make anyone perfect. The, the sacrifice of Jesus, the, of the bringing in of the better hope, that one offering of Jesus did. See, the law was a shadow. The law was a picture. The law was a type. And we will look at these verses when we get there. The law required perfection. Look at Galatians 3, 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, and that's eternal life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. And the law there spoken of is the Mosaic law. So is the Mosaic law then against the promises of God? The promises of God in this context being eternal life. Is the law against the promises of God? In other words, if you could keep, God says, if you could keep my law, the Mosaic law, perfectly, from the day you're born to the day you die, you could go straight to heaven. Is that true? No, if, 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 not can you, not do you, if, if you could keep the law, keep, watch the, the, the if, if you could keep the law of God from the day you're born to the day you die, you would go straight to heaven. Is that true? Yeah. Because if you could keep the law of God from the day you're born to the day you die, you are perfect. You don't need a savior. You're not a sinner. All perfect people go to heaven. The law then, which is perfect, the law is, and the problem is not in the law. The problem is in the followers of the law. So the law is not against the promises of God. If you want a standard of living to work your way to heaven, God has given it. The Mosaic law. But what's the problem? Verse 22 tells us. Galatians 3:22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Scripture teaches us, though, the problem is we're all sinners. All of us. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one of us who can keep the law perfectly from the day we are born to the day we die. There's only one person in history who did that. Who was? Jesus. So Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. 
and he fulfilled it in its entirety, in its perfection. So the law is not against the promises of God. If we could keep the law perfectly, we would have righteousness. We would go straight to heaven, but we are under sin. The problem with keeping the law to get to heaven is we're all sinners. Nobody can do it. If that's your basis for entering into heaven, you're going to be rejected because you've broken the law. Thus, the Levitical priesthood could not bring salvation. Obviously, then, there had to be another way that God would provide. There had to be a new priesthood. What is the purpose of the priest in biblical times, the office of priest? What did he do? He had his back to the people and his face towards God. He was the people's representative before a holy God. The prophet was the exact opposite. He is back to God, his face to the people, thus saith the Lord. But the priest represented the people before a holy God. The Levitical priesthood failed in representing you. All the sacrifices that were offered by them on your behalf didn't forgive one of your sins. There had to be a better way. <clears throat> and there is a better way. If therefore perfection were the, by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek, not be called after the order of Aaron? <coughs> the Levites came from Aaron. That didn't suffice for our salvation. There had to be another priesthood where we could find salvation. Go to the final page. Verse 12. And this statement, this verse, will lead us ultimately into chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and is very logical in the presentation and very, very important to, to, to drive home to the Jewish people. Uh, there's a saying among the Jewish people, from Moses to Moses, there's none greater than Moses. From Moses the lawgiver to Moses Maimonides, who was a very intelligent rabbi, doctor, philosopher in the Egyptian courts in around the 12th century, from Moses to Moses, there's none greater than Moses. How exalted he was. He was the lawgiver. So they have to be shown that the law is insufficient. The law is in a, unable to save you. So with the priesthood then being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now, change in the Greek means to transpose two things, one of which is put in place of the other. To transfer, to change, to transfer oneself or suffer oneself, to be transferred, to go to or pass over, and so on. Now, one of the key things I want you to see here, look at the end of verse 12. The priesthood being changed, that's been established. We needed a better priesthood. Levitical priesthood won't save us. We needed a better priesthood. That's why we have the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. It's eternal. It's perfect. It can do what the Levitical priesthood wouldn't. The Levitical priesthood was part of the Mosaic system, the Mosaic law. 
So if you have a change in the Levitical system, it's, there's a, a necessity then, you have to have a change of the law. And the key, understand, it's a change of the law, not a change in the law. There are those today that teach that we are under the Mosaic Covenant, that is still incumbent upon us. That is 100% wrong. There was a change of the law. The Mosaic Covenant was completely done away with. It was not just things in the Mosaic Covenant. Some people say, well, you know, God did away with the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. We don't have to keep Passover and Yom Kippur, and we don't have to offer sacrifices, and, and all of those ceremonial practices, that was done away with. But the moral part of the Mosaic Law, thou shall not steal, thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not murder, the moral component of the Mosaic, that's still operative. And so it's not all of the Mosaic Law that's been done away with, it's just some of the things in the Mosaic Law have been done away with. It's not what this says. There was of, made of a change also of the entire Mosaic law had to be changed. So with a change in the priesthood, there was a necessity that there was a change in the law. Again, not in the law, but of the law. Not parts of the law were changed, done away with, whatever. The whole law was done away with. The old, the Mosaic Covenant, is done away with, and the new, the new covenant, and that's what chapter 8 is going to build on and establish for us, is established. In other words, we are no longer practicing Judaism, but Christianity. Now, that's a very general statement, probably not the best statement. But in other words, we're not under the Mosaic law, we're under the age of grace. Eric Sauer and again, we're not going to look at all these verses in, in, in Hebrews 8 and 13. Because um, we're going to look at them when we get there. You can look at them later if you want. But Eric Sauer said this, Every distinction between a moral law and a ceremonial law is fake. Because thereby arises an impression that there are two laws. Of which one, the ceremonial law, could be fulfilled by the work of Christ, but the other not. When, when we speak of the Mosaic Law, there are a multitude of parts to the Mosaic Law. The rabbis say 613 in total. We know there are a minimum of, of at least how many parts to the Mosaic Law? Ten. Ten commandments, that's part of the Mosaic Law. But we know there's a lot more than that because you have the animal sacrifices, the different ones, and there, there are hundreds of components, hundreds of parts of the Mosaic Law, but the Bible never refers to it as the Mosaic Laws, the Mosaic singular, law. The law was done away with in all the parts of the law. Baruch Meaz, who pastored a church in Israel, he wrote a book titled, Judaism is Not Jewish. That uh, was published in England. 
Ultimately, it came over here and was published in the United States with a new title, Come Let Us Reason Together. And a little bit of change in the, uh, uh, the book. It was edited down. But the same statement with slight variation was found, uh, is found in both books. He said this, Paul, in the writer to the Hebrews, clearly insisted that the ceremonies of the Torah should not be kept as a means of salvation or as the way to spiritual progress. Torah keeping, in that sense, forms no part of our religion, whether we are Jewish or Gentile, speaking of the Christian religion. The rabbinic assumption that Jewish national identity and any form of religious duty are one and the same is correct only in the sense that Jews as Jews are under obligation to believe in Jesus because he is the promised Lord Messiah. Rabbinic Judaism is not Jewish. It constitutes a determined denial of the Lordship of Jesus and its most fundamental concepts are contrary to biblical teaching. Now, um, the subtitle of his book, Judaism is Not Jewish, is, is a friendly critique of the Messianic Judaism movement. Because the Messianic Judaism movement of today and for the last number of decades embraces rabbinical Judaism and elevates it on the par with the scriptures. And this book that he wrote, and the most recent one, uh, Come Let Us Reason Together, uh, is probably the best treatment that I've run across on it. And he uses this phrase often as, Judaism is not Jewish. Judaism is an aberration of what God wanted for the Jewish people. Judaism is a retreat from the God-revealed truth of the scriptures. Gru Judaism is a denial of their own Messiah, Jesus. And in that sense, Judaism is not Jewish. A true Jew, and this is the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 2. Remember in Romans chapter 2, a, a Jew is one that is circumcised in his Heart, not in his flesh. Now, what we don't want to do with that verse and that passage is apply that to Gentiles and say, well, I've been circumcised in my heart, I've been, which means saved, born again. That means I'm a Jew because a true Jew is circumcised in his heart, not in his flesh. And maybe I wasn't circumcised in my flesh, Certainly you ladies weren't, I don't think. But you were circumcised, construction Judaism circumcised ladies today, but girls. Anyway, uh, you were circumcised in your heart if you're saved. But don't apply that to you. It doesn't make you a spiritual Jew. It has nothing to do with that. The entire context of that and chapter 2 is he first speaks to the Gentiles, and then he speaks to the Jews. The end of chapter 1, starting around verse 17, where it talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, and he talks about all are condemned two ways. 
There's an internal witness and there's an external witness, creation, that condemns us before holy God. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Then in chapter 2, in verse 1 through 14, he addresses the Gentiles who don't have the law. And Gentiles, without the law, without the Mosaic law, are guilty before God by conscience. Your conscience condemns you. And 1 through 14 is dealing with Gentiles. 15, verse 15, to the end of chapter 2, I think it's verse 28 if I'm not mistaken, he's dealing with the Jewish people who have the law. And he's really using a play on words there. He is saying, you are not Jewish by the circumcision of the flesh. Jewish the, comes from the word, or Jew, Jew comes from, from the word Judah, Yehuda. Yehuda, Jewish, literally means praise of Jehovah, praise of God. You are not the praise of God because you had a circumcision in the flesh, speaking to Jewish people. You want to be the praise of God? You want to be what God intended you to be, you need a circumcision of the heart. The entire context of Romans 2, 15 and on is to Jewish people and Jewish people alone. You don't read yourself into that verse. Gentiles are earlier in that verse. Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, if you want to put that before it, is not Jewish. It doesn't bring praise to God. It brings Jewish people and whoever else might embrace it. They're being Gentile converts. Think of um, Melania, not Melania, but um, the daughter Ivanka Trump. She converted to Judaism. She's no closer to God now than she was when she was, I don't know, Presbyterian, I think they were. Judaism does not bring praise to God. It takes Jews away from being praised to God. It takes them away from their Savior, from their Messiah, from what the Bible teaches. There had to be a change in the Mosaic Law that we have a new law that could bring us to God, not the rabbinical Judaism. And so the, the, the old law, the Mosaic Law, was done away with. That includes the Ten Commandments. Now, Again, because of time, we're not going to look at all of these verses. We have looked at this in depth in the past about the doing away of the law. Second um, Corinthians three seven through thirteen talks about uh, the law being uh, the minister of death, but the Spirit gives life. That's the new covenant. Uh, Colossians two fourteen and sixteen and seventeen says the law was just a picture of the coming Messiah, could never, it's just a, it's a shadow of the real thing. Uh, John 1.17, uh, uh, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, not by Moses. So the Mosaic Sabbath, the Ten Commandments, was established for Jewish people. It's a unique sign between God and the Jewish people. In Exodus 31, we're not, again, we're not going to turn there. In 12 through 18, 
Over and over and over again, that passage says that the Sabbath, Mosaic Sabbath, is a sign between me and the children of Israel as a perpetual sign, as an everlasting covenant. It's uniquely Sabbath-keeping, a sign between God and Jewish people. Not Gentiles, not Christians, between God and Jewish people. And it was part of the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. But when the Mosaic Law was done away with, and it was done away with in Jesus, every single part of the Mosaic Law was done, including the Sabbath. So we are not required to keep the Sabbath or any part of the Mosaic Law. The Ten Commandments have no authority whatsoever over us. The church we were at last weekend, and you walk into the front door and right to the what they have a huge, what's it, maybe five foot tall, Ten Commandments on the wall. And that's fine, mate. You know, I guess it you know, reminds people of their sin. But I hope it doesn't imply, hey, we have to keep the Ten Commandments. We don't keep the Ten Commandments. They've been done away with. It doesn't mean we steal. That doesn't mean we lie. That doesn't mean we murder. Because every one of those parts of the Ten Commandments, those nine of the ten, were repeated in the New Covenant, the law of Christ. And we're, So we don't lie. We don't steal. We don't murder. We don't covet. So on. Uh, because we're under the new covenant law of Christ, not the old covenant mosaic standard. There had to be a change of the law. There was a change of the law. And there are those within the Jewish believing community who want to put us back under the law, and they are so wrong in what they... Uh, the hoops that they jump through trying to, 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 to change this and, and what it clearly says is interesting. Then verses 13 and 14 says this. For of he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. So the Melchizedek, Melchizedekian priesthood is speaking of whom? Who's, who's that priest after the order of Melchizedek? Jesus. Verse 8, 14 tells us, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of tribe of Judah, not the Levites, tribe of Judah. They had no place at the altar that was given over to the Levites. Of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. There's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's who we are focusing on. These things speak of this one. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, he's not after the Levites. He's not after Aaron because the requirement of the Messiah that he had to be born out of which tribe? Judah. There had to be a change of the priesthood. There had to be a change of the law because the water of Melchizedek is not a Levitical priesthood. It's a different priesthood. It's an eternal priesthood. And there's actually only one individual in all of eternity who occupies that position. And as we get into this next week, it'll be a very, very strong argument when you have your witness to Mormons. Because the Mormons will argue 
that their priesthood is the Melchizedekian priesthood. Because they recognize they're not all from, none of them, well, I shouldn't say none, uh, but they're, they're very few of them, if any of them, are from the tribe of Judah, uh, from the fr tribe of uh, Levite, excuse me. They're not Levites. So they say our priesthood, the Mormons, is after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what we're going to look at next week, we'll, we'll slam that door shut. Because there's only one who has ever been in the Melchizedekian priesthood. And, and it clearly says, and it doesn't change. In other words, it doesn't pass on to anybody else. And so it, ju it just, if, if Mormons would believe the Bible, if Jews would believe the Bible, if Muslims would believe the Bible, we'd all be saved. Uh, you know, but if they would believe the Bible, it would just slam shut their belief in the religion of Mormonism. But we'll look at that next week and the argument there. Um, but understand uh, all of this and the argument. Uh, Jesus, ultimately, who is in the office, is so much superior to the Levites, to Abraham, to us. And when we know him, do what uh, Dwight Pentecost suggested. Don't question when things go bad. Don't question when things turn south. Don't question when things don't go the way you think they should go. Well, why did you let my child die? Why did you let my spouse get sick? Why did you let this happen, God? God is so superior to us. We don't have all the answers. We may never have all the answers. But as the lesser, we are to trust the greater. Do that in your life. And you'll find a, a much more uh, joy and purpose than you've ever had. You won't find disillusionment. You won't find discouragement. You'll find purpose and joy and satisfaction in what God has for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. And uh, thank you for Jesus, the uh, priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is far superior to all. May we love him, may we worship him, may we honor him because he is God. So we commit these things to you. We, we ask your blessings in our fellowship on the food and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts our teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4400. Seven, seven. Shalom.